0: You're listening to the SSPX podcast and welcome to episode 35 of the Crisis in the Church series. In past years, especially very recently, it has become a mandate for all Catholics to unequivocally accept all the teachings of Vatican II as sort of a litmus test as to whether or not you're a good Catholic. The Society of St. Pius X does not accept all the teachings of Vatican II. So today, Father Jonathan Loop will join us to explain why. But first, we'll start with the infallibility of Vatican II, are all councils infallible? Does Vatican II meet this test of being infallible? And if it does, we have to accept it. We'll discuss all of this next. If you'd like to learn more about the series we're doing on the crisis in the Church, or go back and revisit our previous 34 episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com/crisis. Now we'll turn to our conversation with Father Luke. Welcome back to the Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast, and happy to have Father Loop join us again. Hello, Father. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you, Andrew, and yourself.
0: Doing fine, thank you. And we are we're recording this here towards the uh, towards the end of summertime, and Immaculate Conception Academy gearing up for 2021-2022 school year. I'm sure it's, summer's Indeed. been full of a lot of preparations for you. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Well, no rest during the summertime, like the kids have.
1: yeah for sure
0: well today father we're talking about uh the notion of whether or not vatican ii is infallible whether or not vatican ii is something that as catholics we have to believe and have to follow in order to be catholics um we hear that quite a bit from uh from diocesan catholics or, or normal catholics i guess i should say um well you have to accept vatican ii if you don't accept vatican ii you're not part of the church um, mm-hmm. So that's what we're really talking about today, broadly speaking. Is that right, Father?
1: That is correct. Yes, indeed. Okay. It's, a, it's a difficult issue because it can lead to some confusion for sure.
0: Sure. So where do we start with determining whether or not Vatican II, this council, was infallible or was part of the magisterium of the church, Father?
1: Well, perhaps in one sense where we can begin, and it's in the line of what you were just saying there are a few statements and indications on the part of a few of the authorities of the church after the council that can, in a way, lend himself to the idea, okay, this is something that's infallible and has to be accepted in toto. In other words, everything that's contained in it must be accepted as though we're part of the Catholic faith. Um, So, for example, you know, there you have the, the phrase that was first used by John the 23rd, uh, in his opening or his encyclical Convoking the Council, which we discussed when we were looking at the preparation of the Council, in which he compares the what he hopes to be the Second Vatican Council to a new Pentecost. In other words, it would seem to imply on a certain level that there is just as much of the presence of the Holy Ghost in the teachings of Vatican II as he was present in the beginning of the Church. And I think we'll come back to that at the end. You also have, uh, let's say, someone like Paul VI, who in his, uh, let's say, dealings with Archbishop Lefebvre, the early history of the society, um, was rather frustrated by the critiques that the Archbishop would bring forward and which ultimately we'll see were uh, legitimate. Um, and he would on some occasions exclaim, say, for example, in a consistory to the cardinals, a gathering of the cardinals in 1975, that some people seem to think that the, the council is not binding. And he also wrote in a particular letter to Archbishop Lefebvre, and this is a very striking phrase, and here I'll quote a comment made um, by, um, of another priest, the fraternity, well, um, or by fraternity I mean the society, um, where he says that in the end, in order to go to the very f- foundation of this emphasis that has been given to this council, which ultimately claimed it was only pastoral, Paul the Sixth, in a letter that he wrote to Archbishop Lefebvre on the 29th of June in 1975, finished the letter by saying this, so the Second Vatican Council does not have a lesser authority and under certain aspects is even more important than that of Nicaea. Oh, wow. Now, uh, just for situate our listeners, in the Council of Nicaea is effectively the first ecumenical council, if one does not include the Council of Jerusalem, which was recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. And it was held right after the Peace of Constantine in 325. So the church had just now been granted a legal status officially, and you had had the end of all the persecutions. And so for the first time, you have gathered uh, representatives of the church from throughout the world, and they there gave some of the most foundational definitions. the church are, um, de- clarifying the dogmas that had been begun to be attacked, such as Arianism or or the doctrine that had begun to be attacked was the divinity of our Lord, um, the fact that he was equal with the Father. And um, that was decided at Nicene, and it's through th- that decision that we get the Nicene Creed, which is something Catholics here recited every Sunday at Mass, it has been the defining statement of the faith for 1,700 years at this point. Right. So for Paul VI to say the Second Vatican Council is on and apart and under certain aspects more important than Nicaea is a pretty strong statement. And then maybe one last indication of kind of how it's been viewed is by looking at, just in a, in a broad sense, all the, um, let's say, documents from the vatican speeches by popes after vatican ii in the sense that they reference almost exclusively and that's a strong word and it's a bit of an exaggeration but it's not by much uh, the second vatican council leaving behind to a greater or lesser extent the previous dogmatic councils so for example if you look at um, the catechism of the catholic church that was published in 1992 Um, if you take the time to look at the references, apparently you have upwards of 800 references in that catechism, uh, to Vatican II, while the other, uh, 20 councils, um, previous to it get about 200 mentions combined, Hmm. you know, so about four fifths of the references are just to this one council, um. So, and also you could look at, so just kind of taking something at random. So I happened to be reading earlier this year, the speech that John Paul II gave after the uh, CC prayer meeting in 1986 uh, to the Cardinals. So it was uh, right before Christmas and just going through and saying, okay, what does he reference here? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just a short speech, but in it you have 22 references to the second Vatican council. Um, You have maybe about 10 references, biblical quotations, and then w- only one reference of any kind to any that could be conceivably viewed as a pre-Vatican II um, magisterium. But even there, it's just a quote from St. Augustine, a very famous, you know, our hearts are made for thee and they're restless until they rest in thee. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly a reference to a previous council of any kind. And um. so th- through all of that, you know, it gives the impression for sure that the council is one that must be ex- must clearly be infallible if it's on the level of Nicaea, if it's a new Pentecost, and if it merits so much attention that it can, in a sense, almost replace reference to previous councils and magisterium. So that's, that's kind of where it comes in. That obviously makes it difficult for a number of people. Um, I think, for example, the previous episode, um, you, uh, we were looking at set of vacantism and right. one of the principles of set of is okay. Look, obviously a pope and a council cannot teach error but there is errors in Vatican II right. of one kind or another as a result the logical conclusion is that it's not a true council Pope Paul VI was in fact you know, an imposter and what he tried to promulgate there clearly was not protected by God and in infallibility because he wasn't the pope Right. You know, so it, it can create those kind of you know difficulties, and I think to resolve that, it's it's good to maybe take a step back and look first at what infallibility is. Sure. Um, so all these documents that, that
0: you've been stating this this speech and these conversations from Paul VI to a letter to to Archbishop Lefebvre, all of it, you're kind of laying out here's why many people think Vatican II mm-hmm. has to be infallible because they are resting they the the current popes are resting everything on vatican ii therefore it has to be infallible
1: correct you know it's, and they even imply to diocesans, bishops and whatnot doing everything they do being justified by vatican ii sure without oftentimes any reference to anything previous so it sure. just kind of gives the impression for the average person and not unsurprisingly that right. okay this is infallible
0: right Okay, well, I, I cut you off a little bit. You are about ready to talk about infallibility, taking a step back there, sorry.
1: Oh, no worries, no worries, yeah. So, um, firstly, when we look at the question of infallibility, it's important, I would say, to distinguish it between, let's say, two other, um, let's say, acts that pertain to um, the truths that God makes known to us. So you have, in the first place, inspiration, which is understood to be, that's, let's say, act by which um, God inspires a writer to only um, communicate the truths that God wishes to be communicated. And obviously, this is limited really to the authors of the, whole, uh, of the Bible, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's much more restricted. But more for our purposes, you have revelation. And this is understood in Catholic theology to be that let's say, act by which a new supernatural truth is made known to man that was not previously known. And it's in distinction to that that we have infallibility, which is not the revelation of a new truth, but simply the definition and defense of a truth that has already been revealed. And here I'll just quote a little passage from the Catholic Encyclopedia kind of talking about that. So it says, uh, Revelation, on the other hand, means the making known by God, supernaturally, of some truth hitherto unknown, or at least not vouched for by divine authority. Whereas infallibility is concerned with the interpretation and effective safeguarding of truths already revealed. Hence, when we say, for example, that some doctrine defined by the Pope or by an ecumenical council is infallible, we mean merely that its inerrancy, in other words, the fact that there are no errors in it, is divinely guaranteed according to the terms of Christ's promise to his church. Not that either the Pope or the fathers of the council are inspired, as were the writers of the Bible, or that any new revolution is, or I'm sorry, revelation is embodied in their teaching. So, you know, for example, when the Council of Trent defined, let's say, certain truths regarding the Mass or the Blessed Sacrament or the priesthood, the Council of Fathers were not revealing these truths for the first time they were simply addressing certain attacks against those truths certain confusions that had arisen in the minds of at least you know what we now know as the protestants and laying out very clearly and definitively that this is in fact what god has made known to us and therefore there cannot be any question about it
0: that makes sense so so then when can we say that the church is infallible so when yeah, what question. are the guidelines for that father
1: Okay, so generally uh, the theologians comment that there can be two instances or two, let's say, organs, um, instruments of that infallibility, so to speak. So in the first place, in generally, you have what is known as the ordinary and universal magisterium, which can be infallible. And broadly speaking, what we're dealing with there is the universal and constant teaching of all the bishops of the church um, both in space and in time that a certain truth pertaining to morals or the faith has indeed been divinely revealed a very simple example of that would be the existence of angels you know, mm. where it's never been questioned, but you don't necessarily find in any of the ecumenical councils or in a solemn definition of the Pope um, that you do, in fact, have angels. Um, okay. It's just been something that's continuously acknowledged. Um, so and um, it's important to note several things about that. Um, that it has to be dealing with a question of faith or morals that has been revealed, and they're treating it as having been revealed by, by God in the course of um, the time of the Old Testament or the New Testament up until the death of St. John the Apostle. <clears throat> and furthermore, that the universal character is not merely limited to one given time, <clears throat> but that, in fact, it extends across the centuries— Um, It's something that successive generations of bishops have consistently taught. Um, So there was not a few times when, let's say, Archbishop Lefebvre would be giving interviews to the press or something like that. And the question would not infrequently arise. "Okay, well, look, don't you feel a little bit out of place? You know, you're basically alone uh, in the face of the entire Episcopal body throughout the world saying that you have a problem. Right. You know, I was just listening to a podcast where you are not a podcast, actually, I'm sorry, uh, a spiritual conference that he gave to seminarians at a cone right after he published his open letter to Pope John Paul, the second in 1983. Mm-hmm. And he had initially hoped to get a lot of bishops to sign this. He sent out, you know, he meant to send out copies to all the former members of the Chaitus international, um, uh, Patrum, you know, the conservative ca- uh, bishops at the Second Vatican Council, and in the end all he could get was Bishop de Castro Maior from Brazil, a retired bishop, um, and so it's just these two po- uh, two bishops giving this open letter to the Pope but saying, there's these terrible things that are going on in the church, you know, all these errors that are being allowed to be promulgated in silence for the rest of the bishops, or in some cases outright opposition, so they these journalists are like, don't you feel a little bit, I don't know, out of place? And his own response is, so I was like, no, no, I feel perfectly comfortable because I'm in the majority. Because all the bishops of the previous s- centuries are on my side. You know, I mean, he didn't quite put in that colloquial way, but it's the basic right. point. Um, um, and so in a sense, he's appealing to that aspect, the ordinary and universal magisterium.
0: So the ordinary magisterium—it's—it's it's something that—it's a—it's a truth that has been continuously taught by the church, like you said, like like angels. This is something that has never really been questioned. Successive generations, centuries, have all just assumed or proclaimed that this is this is accurate, without it being officially this is accurate.
1: Correct. And okay. For that reason, it's a little bit unclear, right? In a sense, because um, you know you have theologians like Father Nort. Or one who comment that, you know, you have a series of acts which taken in their totality indicate that you're dealing certainly with a truth that is infallibly uh, revealed by God. You know, however, that can lend itself to ambiguities on occasion. Um, and As a result, the church or our Lord, we could say did provide his church with another means by which that infallibility could be exercised, in which, in other words, you could have an authority to definitively state that this or that truth was revealed by God, or that this way of looking at it is, in fact, wrong and must be rejected. And that's where we come to what's known as the Extraordinary Magisterium. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and here, this can be exercised in two different manners. Um where you have this exceptional um, definition. The first of those uh, deals with perhaps the most famous, is, which is the papal definition, papal use of, of that uh, charism of infallibility. And this is, of course, one that a lot of Protestants have a great deal of difficulty with. Um, and this was defined, certainly, Although it was held before, again, coming with that idea that we're not revealing a new truth. But it was defined uh, conclusively um, at the First Vatican Council in 1870 in the Decree of Pastor Eternos. And here it's just interesting to read it because you can kind of get a sense of how, a, in fact, an infallible uh, definition can be given. So the Church Fathers, and ultimately under Pope Pius IX, uh, wrote as follows. We teach and we define as a divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians and of the whole Church, In virtue of a supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. He possesses, by the divine assistance promised to him in Blessed Peter, that infallibility which the divine Redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves and not by the consent of the church, irreformable. So it makes it very clear, firstly, that this is being taught as something divinely revealed, as something that God has made known to us. And then specifying the very various conditions of it. And normally it's broken down into four, you know, that the Roman pontiff, as the successor of Peter, you know, in his supreme apostolic authority, teaches a doctrine Concerning faith or morals and wills that the whole church accept it is that intention at that point, it is certain that the Holy Ghost will protect him from making any mistake or making an error, which is, of course, what we mean by it being infallible. So, yes, and that's obviously very important. In another aspect, another thing that's important to comment on here in with respect to this papal infallibility is that it's not something that's unlimited. There's a certain uh, precise um, character that it has. And the Council Fathers made this explicit in the same document. And they say that, quote, "...for the Holy Spirit was promised to the successors of Peter, not so that they might, by his revelation, make known some new doctrine, but that by his assistance they might religiously guard and faithfully expound the revelation or deposit of faith transmitted by the apostles. So in other words, what they're saying is that he's not been granted the power to give new revelation. That's basically what that would mean, based on what we were saying earlier. Um, all that he can do is say certainly that this is part of revelation, this is not, um, and this is the way it has to be understood.
0: So he, he would not be able to say there's a fourth person of the Holy Trinity?
1: For, for example,
0: instance. right,
1: for instance, and so, and in fact, uh, maybe we can even clarify there that um there, for example, we'd be dealing with a contradiction to what had been previously taught, you know that right. there are three persons, the Trinity, but here it's even going further and saying that he can't reveal anything that's true and must be held by all Christians um simply new, okay, you know. That all revelation, all revelation that has to be accepted by Christians in order to save their souls was ended with the death of the last apostle. So in other words, God's not going to suddenly make um, known some reality that he's hidden up until this point to us, you know, even if it doesn't contradict previous teaching.
0: Okay. All right. That makes sense. So you now, said that this was, this was um, defined by Vatican I and forgive me Mm -hmm. if I'm jumping ahead maybe you're going to cover this later Um, but Vatican I defined this so that means that a a council can define things as well infallibly right? Not just the
1: Pope. Correct. Correct. And although there's a little bit of a clarification we'll add there so what you're getting at in fact leads to the second expression of this extraordinary magisterium of the church which is when you have convoked um let's say representatives of the universal church who gather together and who, by virtue of the fact that they are the successors of the apostles, contribute to help solemnly define a a doctrine and again not and it's subject to those same conditions ultimately that the pope um was in a sense that it has to be about a doctrine of faith and morals and um that It is being defined as needing to be held by all Christians. So um, there's an intention that it has to be upheld. And the clarification that I mentioned is that ultimately the Ecumenical Council derives its authority and its uh, right to teach by the agreement of the sovereign pontiff, by the Pope, in fact. So, in a sense, um, it's not, we have to make, be clear in our minds that a council could not teach something that the Pope did not agree with. You know, in fact, um, I think that, well, that can be helped clarify by looking at a few examples in history. Um, So, I mean, the most famous in our times uh, council uh, really for the last 500 years has been that of Trent. You know, um, a council that was drawn up In order to really address the attacks and the criticisms and the new novel teachings of the Protestants. And that kind of overshadowed much of the, um, let's say, uh, magisterium of the church for the next 400 years. Then you have Vatican I. Um, Both of those were convoked by the Pope, they were sanctioned by him. And ultimately, you know, he um, ratified the teachings that they promulgated, which is now at this point, you see, uh, it gives an insight to the fact that they um, or those councils were infallible by participation and then infallibility ultimately with uh, St. Peter, insofar as they themselves were part of the Apostolic College, you know, the, the successors of the Apostles. Um, But you do have historical instances where you have um, gatherings of bishops, um, which are opposed by the popes, Mm -hmm. and as a result are not acknowledged as ecumenical councils, at least by the church. Um, Perhaps one of the more uh, easy illustrations of that historically is um, a council that was held in 449, so we're going way back in history. Um, in Ephesus. And it was called by, uh, let's say initially, by a the patriarch of Constantinople Dioscorus, in order to address a few things, amongst which was the question as to whether or not our Lord had one or two natures, whether he was simply divine, or whether he still indeed had a distinct human nature. And so the Pope at the time, Leo the Great, our Saint Leo the Great, um, did in fact send representatives and legates to the council, indicating that he was willing to you know, condone it on a certain level. However, things did not go particularly well, and um, the, the bishops there, under the influence of Dioscorus, um, basically kicked out the legates, uh, didn't allow them to take an active part. In fact, St. Leo had written a letter that he wished to have read there and wished to have agreed to by the members of the council. And there was, uh, the legates were not allowed to read it at all. And then they proceeded to make their decisions. And at um, the end of the uh, the proceedings, the legate of the pope, basically, uh, according to some accounts, simply said one word, contradictor. this is contradicted, we don't accept this. And, and, of course, went back to Rome, relayed everything that happened. And St. Leo the Great basically um, completely rejected the, the teachings of the council um, and going so far as to call it a robber um, council. And two years later, you had another gathering, this time again, in Asia Minor uh, at a city called Chalcedon, uh, where that letter that St. Leo Oh, I had written was in fact read and ratified and agreed to by everybody, all the bishops there, and you, and then Saint Leo, um, for his part, ratified its decisions, and that means that it's recognized as an ecumenical council, whereas the one held two years previously in Cal- or in Ephesus is not. You know, so again, it really shows the the need for the ratification of the pope, and also we can say his intention. Another example of that is what's called as concili- um, the Council of uh, Constance and Basil in the mid fourteen hundreds or early fourteen hundreds, really, and where you had, in fact, the growth of a uh, doctrine called which has been labeled as conciliarism, uh, which can be very simplified as the idea that uh, the council is over and above the pope. Mm. You know, and, and can uh, teach things opposed to him and, does, and can teach things whether they, he agrees to it or not. Um, and that was in part uh, a response to the confusion that had arisen as a result of the Great Western Schism, which had just ended at the Council of Constance when you know, the, the, the true pope and the 2 antipopes anti-popes both uh, resigned, all three, I should say, resigned, and the, their new pope was elected, Martin V. And so some uh, churchmen are like, okay, look, that was crazy. Um, obviously, that's not going to help. So what we need to do is we uh, really should uh, realize that the supreme governing body of the church is a council of bishops, and that, of course, will never cause any problems. You know. So, and eventually, so at the Council of Basel, it was convoked by um, Pope Martin V, you know, kind of at the recommendation or the request of the. Church fathers had the Council of Constance, but eventually dimi- uh, disbanded. He's like, "Hey, okay, look, we're done," you know, right. because basically they were trying to usurp um, his authority.
0: So it's it's kind so of similar again, to the principles that we looked at when we were talking with Don Tranquillo about collegiality, where the the jurisdiction yeah. of the bishops comes from the Pope. In this Saint, in this instance, the the jurisdiction or the power of a council. Is the power of the Pope? It is. It is shared by him with the Council, in mm-hmm. a sense. I'm probably oversimplifying it, uh, but mm-hmm. it, it relies on that power, that authority that the Pope has, and that's not really the the quibble here with Vatican II. Obviously, the Popes during Vatican II and after have agreed with everything Vatican II said, but mm-hmm. it is interesting to see that distinction.
1: It is, but it also touches on the question of Vatican II because it depends on the intention of the Pope. Oh. And of the, so in, a, in the sense that the uh, council cannot have more authority than the pope intends to give it. Okay. And that's going to, uh, let's say, be very important when we look at Vatican II, because um, both of the popes who were involved with it, John Twenty Third and Paul VI, made exceedingly clear, as we'll see, that their intention was precisely to keep it to what they call the pastoral council. And what that's going to mean is that they did not intend, through the council, to issue any, uh, any solemn definitions of the extraordinary magisterium. Meaning, in other words, that, that charisma infallibility was not, at least in that extraordinary manner, not present at the council. Which is, of course, hugely important. Right. Um, perhaps to clarify that, unless you have a question there. No, go ahead. Okay, so perhaps to clarify that, I propose to run through a few of the passages of both John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, and even some of the commissions, the doctrinal commission at the council, which help to make that a little bit more clear. So. To begin with, we can uh, cite John XXIII in his opening address to the council to get, that he gave on the 11th of October in 1962 to all the bishops uh, united there to kind of give his, um, you might say, mission statement for the council. In, as part of that, he says that often errors vanish as quickly as they arise, like fog before the sun. The church has always opposed these errors. Often she has condemned them with great severity but today, the spouse of Christ prefers to make use of the medicine of mercy rather than that of severity. She considers that she meets the needs of today by demonstrating the validity of her teaching rather than by condemnations. And then he goes on to say um, that the greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this, that the sacred departs of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of the faith is one thing, and the way it is presented is another. So a couple of things to take note from there. So firstly, he makes it clear that his intention is not to make a point of condemning error. It's not going to be the emphasis that he wants the council to have. He's giving a very big push. You know, and a pope, he has a huge influence in the mindset of the bishops that are present. And that's, I think, um, the reason why, um, say, in the preparatory period of the council, Archbishop Lefebvre, and again, he, I think uh, he would repeat this at the council, but made a proposition of, OK, look, you know, that's great. Let's address ourselves to modern man. Um, so but at the same time, we need clarity. So why don't we produce two sets of documents, one that's meant for a more general reception, Um and can therefore be more loose in its expression. And on the other hand, uh, why don't we produce a set of documents which has clear and very crystal-like uh, definitions, You know, where things are made abundantly clear. This is a Catholic teaching about this, and what is opposed to it is absolutely to be rejected. And that was uh, itself, that proposition, never got anywhere. It wasn't just, uh, no one was... Um, willing to follow that route, partly because the Pope's uh, emphasis there. And that statement that the substance of the ancient doctrine is one thing and the way in which it is presented is another is also indicative in the sense that we're not looking to define new things, but we're just wanting to, uh, you might say, repackage it. You know, mm-hmm. we, if we wanted to use our terms in our day and age, we want to rebrand, in a sense, right. you know, the, the Catholic Church. Um, which, of course, is problematic. Now, that being said, um, so two things. Firstly, um, that's not sufficiently clear. I would say there's going to be more clear statements. And then secondly, John Twenty Third died before any document was promulgated, period. You know, So ultimately, the real force of the council is going to rest with the successor, Paul Sixth. Now, for him there's several passages we can quote here. So to begin, uh, and one of the address he gives in the opening of the second session. So this is right after he's been elected to the papacy and there had been a little bit of a question, okay, is he going to continue the council at all? Right. Okay. And in that address, he says, it seems to us that the time has come to explore penetrate and explain more and more the doctrine about the church of Christ, but not with those solemn statements which are called dogmatic definitions, but rather in the form of declarations in which the church, in more explicit and considered teaching, presents that which she holds. Mm -hmm. In other words, and the the important thing is is he's saying that it's not my intention that in this council we put forth solemn definitions. In other words, make use ultimately of that extraordinary uh, singular act of defining what the church holds about this or that disputed question, but rather just to take what she's already taught and to make it more explicit in some way or another. Okay. And that'll be imp- and we'll come back to that. Now, again, he says uh, in this time, it's at the discourse that he gave closing the council. So on the 7th of December, 1965, he says that one thing must be noted here, namely that the teaching authority of the church, even though not wishing to issue extraordinary dogmatic pronouncements, has made thoroughly known its authoritative teaching on a number of questions, which weigh upon man's conscience and activity, and acti- descending, so to speak, into a dialogue with man, with modern man, but ever preserving its own his the church's own authority and force. It has spoken with the accommodating, friendly voice of pastoral charity. Its desire has been to be heard and understood by everyone. It is not merely concentrated on intellectual understanding, but it also sought to express itself in simple, up-to-date, conversational style, derived from the actual experience and cordial approach, which make it more vital. And attractive and persuasive, it is spoken to modern man as he is. Okay, so it's again at the very beginning of that there's a rather long quotation and I apologize but at the very beginning he says the council did not wish to issue any extraordinary dogmatic pronouncements but to give an authoritative teaching which ultimately at that level is going to be nothing more than a continuation of the ordinary and universal magisterium which is authoritative to that extent Um, but it did not issue any solemn teaching and he makes that again clear at that point. And then perhaps one more quote. And this is taken from a general audience that he gave just a few, basically a month after that closing discourse. So this is in January of 1966. So he's just addressing people. And he says that those who ask, what is the authority, the theological qualification, which the council wished to attribute to its teaching, knowing that it has avoided giving solemn dogmatic definitions, committing the infallibility of the ecclesiastical magisterium. And the answer is known to those who remember the conciliar declaration of March 6, 1964, and repeated on November 16, 1964, that given the pastoral character of the council, it avoided pronouncing in an extraordinary way dogmas endowed with a note of infallibility. Um, so it's fairly strong,
0: you know. Right. Can, can um, I ask real quick, why, why did they not want to both John the 23rd and Paul the sixth? it seems like they were of the same mind to not make this a
1: dogmatic council. Why, why not? That's a long question, I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> so maybe and, not here. <laughs> yeah. But, just in very simplistic answer to it, I think a couple of reasons. Firstly, because to a greater or lesser extent, they viewed those efforts of uh, defining things as part of a, let's say, closed mindedness in dealing with modern man. You know, that um, there is this great, you know, going back to what Paul VI said uh, in that quotation from the end of the Second Vatican Council, he says that, you know, it is not, merely concentrated on an intellectual understanding, but has it sought itself to, to express itself in a simple, up-to-date, conversational style. We want to okay. be pastoral. We want to reach modern man where he is. And that's the very end of that quotation I cited. It has spoken to modern man as he is. And modern man doesn't like, you know, clear, precise, scholastic definitions of things. You know, he's much more loose in how he approaches things outside okay. of, let's say, modern science.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Um, so, I mean, and that, that's just a very broad thing. And of course, you know, you, one could also say that, you know, um, for some of the people who wanted to update the church, like the liberals within the church, they wanted to avoid those kind of clear definitions, precisely so that through the ambiguous language, they could plant, you know, the time bombs or whatever you, however you wish to call them, that they could later exploit in their, and, in their sense.
0: And that's kind of why I was asking that. I was wondering if, I mean, they had... They had to have known that what they really wanted to publish, if they did it dogmatically, it would have been a contradiction. And that would open opened up a whole other mm-hmm. can of worms that they would have had to then deal with. So much easier to make it pastoral and make it ambiguous than to try to fight against facts.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... And simply put, I mean, if they had come down with that degree of clarity, we're going to solemnly define that it is, you know, we're a part of divine revelation that every man has, you know, an individual right to practice Buddhism. Right. You know, you know, and a lot of bishops are like, wait, 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 what? No, no, that's not right. Wouldn't you know, And there would have been. Uh-huh. So and just perhaps. Um, and maybe just as a, a final note there. Uh, we can refer to Cardinal Ratzinger, um, who, in a speech that he gave to some bishops of Chile in 1988, in fact, just after um, the consecrations uh, that our russell have performed, he told them, or I'll just quote a, a passage from a writing of another fraternity or society priest, um, so in a, in a discourse that he pronounced on the 13th of July, 1988, before the bishops of Chile, and kind of putting a conclusion to the consecration that had been just done by Monsignor Lefebvre, Colonel Ratzinger, obviously the future of Benedict Sixteenth, has um, resu- um, kind of discussed and stated about Vatican II the f- and made the following statement, that the truth is that the council has not defined any dogma and that it is desired to hold itself on a more modest level being simply a pastoral council you know and at this point he's the uh, prefect of the congregation of the doctrine of the faith the successor of the holy office and he had participated not as a bishop at the council but as a, as an expert And he's simply stating that, okay, it did not intend to define new uh, dogma in the sense of clarifying and taking something that had not previously been true or a dogma and um, solidifying it. It's really what we have to mean there. So that comes back now to the question, is it infallible? Is Vatican II infallible? And I think what we can answer initially is that it's not infallible in the sense with the extraordinary magisterium, and that's the supreme authority of the church has made it abundantly clear that it did not intend to define anything in an extraordinary or solemn manner. It's just, and here I'll quote a, a theologian that's not in the society circles, is a priest named Father William Most, he's written a book that maybe some of your listeners will know, uh, called... Um, Actually, I forget, it, but it's about Our Lady, which is a very good book. I just finished it uh, myself, this. actually. It is good. Okay, great. Um, and anyway, so he this comes from a study that he did on Lumen Gentium, and he has a large introduction, which is kind of interesting. He's just talking about, okay, what is the infallible, what is the doctrinal note of Vatican II? And so he kind of concludes by, he looks at a lot of these quotations and stuff like that, and his conclusion is that Paul VI said that Vatican II falls on the level of the ordinary magisterium, as in the quote above from the audience given on the 12th of January 1966. This means we have nothing on the highest level of the magisterium, any solemn definitions. So again, this is not a society priest. It's just a a theologian looking at the statements of Pope Paul VI, etc. And concluding, okay, look, that means it's not an act of the extraordinary magisterium. You know, It's at the most at the level of the ordinary magisterium. Okay. Um, so to look then at that we can I would say state uh, certainly that some parts of the um, Vatican II could potentially fall under the infallibility of the ordinary magisterium but all that would mean is that it's simply repeating what the church has throughout the ages taught as infallibly true now um, perhaps one example of that is, in fact, from Lumen Gentium, talking about papal infallibility. And just to give a portion of that section, uh, Lumen Gentium states that the Pope's definitions of themselves and not from the consent of the Church are rightly called unchangeable, for they are pronounced with the assistance of the Holy Ghost, and assistance promised him in the Blessed Peter. So... They need no approval from others, nor is there any room for an appeal uh, to any other judgment. Effectively, it's just reiterating what Vatican I taught, mm-hmm. which itself, you know, is just a solemn definition of what the Church had and always believed. And so, we can say with reason that that is infallible. You know, that part, that section of Vatican II is in fact infallible because it's an expression of the ordinary and universal magisterium, and we can say that it's. Part in in part, this is what Archbishop Lefebvre had in mind when he stated, you know, to that he was willing. Let's say, for example, in the protocol of 1988, of uh, May of 1988, that he signed, um, that he's willing to accept Vatican II in the light of tradition. You know, in other words, in so far as it agrees with the ordinary universal magisterium and other pronouncements of the extraordinary magisterium, and in some instances, yeah, we have no problem with that. Because it's just a reflection of what the church has always held.
0: And this is why, and I, and I think in another instance, and I may be totally misremembering, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe sure. he did say that there was plenty in Vatican II that was perfectly good and perfectly fine.
1: Um, what you might be thinking of... Perhaps is I remember Bishop lay making a comment along those lines. That was it. It's, it's also possible that Archbishop Lefebvre did as well. I, I don't recall anything off the top of my head, but I know that Bishop lay made that. And it's it's true. Things like this, it's like okay, there's no question, there's no doubt because right. it is our faith. This right. is the, you know, the Pope is as the successor of Peter, infallible. No one can appeal his definitive judgments. You right. know, especially on matters of faith and morals. Okay. Um, now, because. You know, what we're saying is that it's infallible when it is, let's say, an expression, a faithful expression of what the church has always taught. We can also say that in neither case, let's say, uh, can a doctrine which opposes the perennial teaching of the church be protected by infallibility? It could not be protected under an extraordinary um, claim to an extraordinary act of the magisterium or a claim that it's part of the ordinary and universal magisterium. You can't. The Church cannot um, either contradict what she has taught in the past, nor, again, as we were talking earlier, define something that's not included in Revelation, that's simply new. Um, and, yeah, so, uh, like the Church is specifically, definitively, and infallibly stated in Vatican I that even the most solemn use of her infallibility cannot intro- introduce new doctrines. Okay. So, neither could a council do so cannot reveal new doctrines. And here, just as an interesting note, it's perhaps worthy of uh, attention to to cite a certain passage from Ecclesia De Afflicta. You know, that document wherein John Paul II uh, stated that, oh, you know, um, by committing this schismatical act, um, has excommunicated himself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, he goes on at a certain point saying, look, we obviously this is a call for attention for ourselves in the church, and we have to review uh, and get a better understanding of certain doctrines so as to help these people, in other words, those who don't have the understanding of the living tradition. And here I'll quote him directly. He says, Indeed, the extent and the depth of the teaching of the Second Vatican Council Call for a renewed commitment to deeper study in order to reveal clearly the council's continuity with tradition. And here's the interesting point, especially in points of doctrine, which, perhaps because they are new, have not yet been well understood by some sections of the church. In other words, he's acknowledging that there is new doctrine here, which is mm-hmm. precisely what the church cannot do. Um all it can do is define definitively and clarify anything that has been disputed or which was un- uncertain, in a sense. It cannot simply produce new doctrines. And here we can refer back to St. Paul, that very famous passage from his letter to the Galatians, where he writes that, you know, I marvel that some of you are so quickly moved from that um, grace that you were received in Christ to another gospel which is not another gospel, except that there be some that trouble you and wish to overturn the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel of heaven, were to evangelize something to you beyond that which we have taught you, let him be anathema. As I've said before, I now repeat, if anyone... Should evangelize or teach you a gospel other than that which you have already received, let him be anathema. It's pretty strong. Even if Mm -hmm. an angel from heaven were to come and give you new doctrine, something that's not contained in the revelation that uh, was finished with the um, death of St. John, let him be anathema. And here I'd like to return to kind of where we began um, with the question of that um, new Pentecost, um, you know that John the twenty third kind of used uh, in his opening convoking thing, in which a term became very, very widely spread and used. it's It's a very ambiguous term. And I think it's worthwhile to compare it to St. Paul's um, discussion of the new versus the Old Testament that he um, gives in his letter to the Hebrews. He says in it um, that if the first testament had been lacking um, any fault, had been perfect, there would not have been any need to seek for a second. In saying that there is a new, he has made the former one old. And what has become old and has aged is close to destruction. So, in other words, the New Testament replaces the Old Testament. And even I'm sure I think it'd be far too much to state that this is really the intention of someone like John the 23rd. I don't think that would be true. But at the same time, it nevertheless lends itself in that direction. To speak of a new Pentecost makes the old Pentecost something that's no longer needed. Um and, you know, you have the similar parallel with the new evangelization that was so popular under John Paul II. The new evangelization is one that's ultimately replacing the old. Right. Even if that's, again, they would not admit it, but it's the reality of the situation. Um, and so ultimately, you know, all those points of doctrine, you know, which we've seen in some detail, that in one way or another are at odds with what the church has always taught, certainly cannot have any claim of any kind to the protection of that charism of the infallibility that was promised to Saint Peter and to the apostles, and as a result are not only legitimately open to question but in those cases where they manifestly go against what the church has always taught have to be re- repulsed have to be rejected you know and it's not sufficient to say that well they were you know published as a result of you know uh, by this ecumenical council that they necessarily have to be accepted by a catholic it's simply not the case you know for those documents which are those parts of the documents which um, reiterate and repeat what the church has taught then fine yeah we're more than glad to yield our, our our spirit and our mind to that by virtue of faith because it's simply what the church has always taught
0: but there's certainly it's certainly a mistake to say all of Vatican II is part of the ordinary magisterium. I mean, uh, you'd have to be kind of Correct. tone deaf to say for anyone to argue that Vatican II is part of the extraordinary magisterium. It It's just not. The facts just Correct. don't support it. There's a Correct. little bit more, it's a little bit more squishy when you get into trying to say whether or not it's part of the ordinary magisterium, but it's still mm-hmm. manifestly false to say that all of Vatican II is part of the ordinary magisterium because there are parts that are, are not because they contradict mm-hmm. previous and it, portions of the ordinary magisterium. Mm-hmm.
1: And as, as we were saying earlier, that ordinary magisterium is also the other, uh, let's say, uh, adjective is ordinary and universal, and that universal is in not only space, but time. You mm-hmm. know, So those things that contradict what has been part of the universal magisterium in time cannot be lay claim to being part of that ordinary magisterium.
0: I have kind of a silly question. Um, sure. We might cut this part out. I don't know. Um, at what point do things become part of the ordinary magisterium? Like, if... if uh, could Vatican II exist for 300 years, and now because it's existed for 300 years, now it becomes part of the ordinary magisterium? I mean, I kind of know the answer to that, but...
1: No, I mean, another way to answer that is the source of the magisterium is revelation. Ah, you know, okay. So only those things could ever be part of the ordinary magisterium, which merely means the teaching of the, the bishops as the successors of the apostles, which was, in fact, revealed by our Lord uh, to the apostles and to the church up until the death of St. John. So um, it's not merely the fact that something has been around for a long time, that it becomes part of the ordinary magisterium, but again, that that was the other qualification, is that these things are taught by all bishops throughout all time as revealed by God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Ghost. Um, And it's simply impossible that something like um, ecumenism be said in any uh you know, at least the ecumenism of the vatican second vatican council as let's say illustrated by Assisi, uh, the prayer meeting which john paul ii said was a living catechesis of what a second vatican council was all about this is a pretty um, amazing statement right um there's just no way that they could ever be legitimately claimed to be have been revealed by our lord jesus christ it's just no way right.
0: I have uh, one more question before before we, we mm-hmm. close up here, Father. Um, when I was editing some of the previous episodes, I was looking at the documents from Vatican II, um, mm-hmm. and a couple of them say Dogmatic Constitution. That's the title of these documents. Sure. I think Lumen Gentium is one of them, maybe. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so it says Dogmatic Constitution. So does that mean that that document is dogmatic? I know you kind of already answered it by saying that the popes sure. had no intention of it being uh, part of the... Uh, had no intention of Vatican II being an extraordinary uh, magisterial council, but is that document dogmatic then?
1: Well, it yes. I mean, but what we mean by that is that it deals with dogma. It doesn't wow. necessarily indicate the manner in which that dogma is dealt. Okay, so there are certain dogmas that are treated in there. For example, I mean, as just an illustration of that, that quotation I gave from uh, Lumen Gentium about the authority of the Pope and his ability to define things, you know, is a dogma. It's being treated in this this Constitution. It's not being defined, because it already was defined by Vatican I, but um, the fact that it's being treated there gives... um, the occasion to call the constitution dogmatic, but again, the um, as to whether or not a dogma is defined, that depends on the intentions of those who publish or you know uh, promulgate the document.
0: Okay. All right, that makes sense. Um, well, th- this is this is interesting. I've I've known bits and pieces of this, but thank you for putting it all together in in one concise uh, portion for us, Father. That definitely helps, and it's it's good to know that. Uh, very clearly that difference between the extraordinary magisterium and the ordinary magisterium. That's uh, extraordinarily helpful.
1: Very good. Well, thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you, Father. Look forward to seeing, seeing you again.
1: All right. Very good.
0: Thank you for listening to and watching episode 35 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next time on the Crisis series, we'll ask the big question, how can the church have given us the Novus Ordo Mass? We've already talked about how it's a deficient, yet valid, right. But how can the church, if it is truly indefectible, as Christ promised, give us a deficient way to worship God? It doesn't seem to make sense. But Father McGilvery will come back to help us unpack all of this. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of $5 or $10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this crisis in the church project. We'll be going through October, and we are in the stretch, but we still need some help. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.